When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Intelligent Speech is happening online on Saturday, June 25th, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, and consists of four simultaneous rooms presenting engaging talks, roundtable discussions, and rousing Q&As. Trevor Cully from the History of Persia podcast. Tegan Phillips of the History and Philosophy of Physics podcast. And Gary Stevens from the History in the Bible podcast. Sarah of the Rejects and Revolutionaries podcast. Me and Christy, the host of Terranauts. Jamie Jeffers from the British History podcast. Tickets are available at intelligentspeechconference.com and your ticket entitles you to both live attendance and access to all recordings after the fact if you cannot be there at the time or want to catch more of the amazing content happening simultaneously. Ancient Persian propaganda in modern Iran. Napoleonic-themed roundtable. Solar spectroscopy. The Mystocles and the space program and the collective power of the big idea. Tickets again are available at intelligentspeechconference.com and we hope to see you there. Hello and welcome to Legendary Africa. Legendary Africa is a podcast focused on adapting African myths, legends, and lore in a fun, sometimes humorous, and always magical way. Everyone's heard of werewolves, dragons, magical stone circles, and the Loch Ness Monster. But have you heard of werehyenas, gigantic elephant-headed snakes, and Kodumo Dumo, the terrifying swallowing monster? But don't worry, Legendary Africa also has badass dragon-slaying princesses. Quests for Egyptian treasure, demigods, giants, ogres, witches, and even fairies. There are spooky ghost stories that'll make you leave the lights on at night, as well as sweet animal folktales which can educate and delight. So, there's something for everyone. Legendary Africa brings you myths, mysteries, and magical stories from the magnificent continent of Africa, and I'm so excited for you to join me. Available on all popular podcasting platforms, so subscribe on your favorite platform, listen, and if you like what you hear, pop us a review. Follow on Twitter at LegendaryPod1 and Instagram at LegendaryPod. I am your host, the Shirapapa, and I hope you'll join me every month for another African adventure. Stay safe, stay sexy, and stay legendary. Gamar Zoba, everyone! Before we get into today's show, I want to extend you an invitation to the 4th Annual Intelligent Speech Conference. Intelligent Speech is a 100% online conference that connects independent, educational podcasters like myself with you, the fans, for a one-day event. I'll be speaking about the Georgian influence on the Holy Land. Tickets are on sale now. But if you buy before May 15th, you get 10 bucks off. You can get an additional 10% off if you use the code SAC, 
S-A-K. That's 18 bucks for a day with your favorite educational podcasters. Go to www.intelligentspeechconference.com to learn more and purchase your tickets. I'll see you on June 25th from 9.45 a.m. to 6.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. All the information can be found in the episode transcription. And now, on to the show. Glory to the Gamarjoba, and welcome to the History of Sacarvelo, Georgia. I'm your host, Roberto, and this is episode 20 on Orthodoxy with Father Christos. I just want to apologize ahead of time for any sound quality issues we may be facing in the rest of the episode. We were recorded in an actual church, so the acoustics of that building, while spectacular to hear when you're inside, do not work well when you're recording with one microphone. However, I'm very glad that Father Christos Petitzas, who is my local priest here at the parish that I attend, is a fascinating fellow, and he has helped me learn so much about orthodoxy and Christianity itself. In the beginning, you will have heard music, which is actually sung by Presbytera Katina, who is Father Christos's now deceased wife and a friend of mine. May she rest in peace. But she wrote this Dohasikan of Pasha, and I just wanted to showcase this music because of my friendship with Father Christos and with my friendship with Presbytera Katina. So please enjoy. The full song is at the end, and we have this use of music with the full rights from Father Christos and the estate that it comes from. Now, enjoy the rest of this episode, and I can't wait to hear your feedback. Hi everyone, I'm joined today by Father Christos from the Saints Peter and Paul Church here in Pennsylvania. Welcome to the show, Father Christos. It's really such a privilege to be here, Roberto. It's good to sit here with you. And I'm glad you joined us today because this is something I've been wanting to... Basically, I wanted to have someone on the show who was immersed in religion and actually could speak of it on a point of essentially knowledge that, that I don't directly have. So, thank you for coming today. Well, I'll, I'll share what little I, I, I can, <laughs> as, as best I can. Thank you so much. Can you introduce yourselves to us, please? Yeah, I'm Father Christos Petitsis. I'm the rector of the parish priest of St. Peter and Paul Orthodox Church in Mount Union, Pennsylvania. Our church was founded in 1916, so it's quite an old church by now. I've been here for almost 10 years at this parish. I'm also an eye surgeon at the local hospital, and I'm a volunteer priest here at, at St. Peter and Paul, which is such a privilege for me. I have a personal interest in the Church of Georgia. My godmother's name was Nina. Oh, perfect. <laughs> and uh, I, my father's name is George, mm-hmm. and my godfather's name is George, and my, my uncle's name was George, and my son's name is George. So we're like the nation of Georgia. There's a lot of Georges in our family. <laughs> yes. I, it's just an honor to have you here, and, and pleases me that uh, you're, you also knew my wife before she died four years ago, mm-hmm. and that we get the chance to talk here as friends. And, well, thank you for having me come to the church and inviting me when I asked all those questions all those years ago when I was returning from Russia and I wanted to learn more about Orthodoxy. Father Christos here was the one who 
opened my eyes more and actually told me the things in English, which helped me understand orthodoxy a lot more. And he, made, he gave me a lot of amazing literature that actually helps me understand the faith a bit more. But as I mentioned earlier, I wanted you to hear it from his mouth because he is the one who's been doing this for years and he knows a lot more than I will ever know. I, but the first question I wanted to ask is, what is Orthodox Christianity? What separates it from everything else? Well, um, first of all, it's an apostolic church. So that means it's founded upon the teachings of the apostles, uh, the apostles of Christ. And that means it really is founded upon Christ because the apostles taught what the Savior had given them. So it's the apostolic foundation. And you know, Christ is the chief cornerstone. He's the chief shepherd of the church. He's uh, the one with everything. He's the head of the church. Everything depends upon him. So the apostles built their foundation upon Christ. So it's an apostolic church. So we have apostolic traditions. And of course, the scriptures themselves came out of the oral tradition of the church. They weren't written down contemporaneous with the events. Uh, they were part of an oral tradition that was kept in the heart of the church and after a few decades written down by the four evangelists and by St. Paul and, and others who recorded these events. And that all came out of the bosom of the church who were eyewitnesses of our Savior and his passion, his death, his burial, his, and his resurrection from the dead. So they, that's where the church stands upon. So that's the apostolic faith. And secondly, it's a Catholic faith. It's not a Roman Catholic faith. We call it an Orthodox Catholic faith. But it's meaning that, uh, as St. Vincent of Laren said, that we, we believe what has been preached everywhere by everyone and always. It's not something that's preached in just a narrow area of the world, but the whole world has heard, heard this faith. This is the faith that all the true Christians have believed from the beginning, and there's nothing, it's nothing new about it. It's always been the same. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the Apostle Paul says. So our faith doesn't change with the times in, in, to reflect a different morality, moral relativism, a new way of looking at moral things, or a new way of looking at God. It's, it's the same faith that we've always had. So that tradition is really strong and gives orthodoxy a great foundation. And I think that one of the biggest differences between orthodoxy and all other Christian faiths is the goal. The goal is communion with God on this earth. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We believe that it's possible on this earth, through achievement of purity of heart, to actually see God in his energies, not his divine essence, but such as the apostles did on Mount Tabor when they saw him in that light of it was, they couldn't describe as brighter than the sun, brighter than a fuller could make uh, anyone's robes. That God, they can, we can see God in this life. Our Savior says, become ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And he said to the, to the rich young man who wanted to, fought to know how to receive eternal life, he says, if you wish to be perfect, sell all you have and come and follow me. And St. Peter talks about becoming partakers of divine nature. So our goal is not simply to be saved from hell, which is certainly a very important goal because hell can be a bottomless pit of suffering and evil, but to be saved for something, that is union and communion with God. And that that begins now, it doesn't wait until you're, you've gone from this earth. So the other big difference is we're not trying to set up an earthly kingdom. As much as Georgia is a nation centered on God, it recognized that even there, the kingdom is in the heavens. And that nation is set up to help lead people to that kingdom, not to be an end of itself. And so the church is not a state. 
And the church is not run by a government. Instead, it's the Lord who is the head of the church, not any mere man. And we are seeking that goal. So those are just some very broad uh, differences. But uh, I, I think you can go into many different theological issues where you see how orthodoxy is different. The whole faith versus works controversy. The Protestants emphasizing faith, the Roman Catholics emphasizing works, even merits. So you earn things by your good behavior and good deeds. But in orthodoxy, we realize it's not faith or works, it's God that saves us. And so it's always by the mercy of God. And while we do expend great effort for our own salvation, uh, our, our Savior says, the kingdom of heaven is taken by violence, and the violent take it by force. And narrow is the way, and few are they who reach it. And broad is the way that leads to perdition. So it's a struggle, but it's not that we earn salvation. It is still a gift of God, but we show and demonstrate our free will, and we prepare ourselves for God's grace. And he's the one who gives the increase and gives the harvest. Well, I actually got goosebumps from all of that and listening to you. So... But yes, and thank you for answering the question. No, glory to God. It's a beautiful faith, and it's, it's, there's so many layers of richness in, in it. It's just truly astounding. And I can attest to that, just coming to the church when I do, because I lead a very busy lifestyle, so I do try to come in, but thankfully I'll be here for Pascha or Easter, so I am actually very excited about that. Yes, we're, we're so glad to have you. And these are the best services of the whole year, the, really, to not just hear about our Savior's passion and resurrection, but really to be eyewitnesses again of it happening, to participate in it, to have our own little passion during that week where we struggle, we fast, we stand for long hours, we, we make our prostrations, we, we make our effort to walk the path of Christ and carry our own crosses toward Golgotha during that Passion Week. And then I'm going to lead on to the next question being... How and when did it spread off from the other churches? Because I know that you had the great schism with the Catholic Church. Yeah, that's in 1054. Mm -hmm. Now, there were events that preceded that. And during the time of St. Photius the Great, the Roman Catholic pontiff began asserting that he was the supreme head of all the church. At that point, he wasn't yet claiming to be infallible, but he considered that all matters could be referred to him as judge of the whole church. And Orthodoxy has always been a synodal church. That means it's run by a group of, first it was apostles in Jerusalem. The first apostolic councils mentioned the Acts of the Apostles. And it was not run by Peter, by mm -hmm. St. Peter, but by St. James, the brother of the Lord. He was the bishop of Jerusalem. And not all of them are recorded as speaking, but they reached a consensus and it said, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us, and to us, not to me. Mm -hmm. And so... There's not a single earthly head of the church. It's Christ himself the head. And the bishops get together and decide things. And they are infallible when they are in unison with Christ and the apostolic tradition and not when they contradict it. As I said, there's nothing new. So any new teaching is any novel teaching that goes against the apostolic faith is not orthodox. And there are things the Orthodox don't know. We don't know how many angels dance on the head of a pin, but what God has revealed, that we proclaim. And everything else, we say, well, God knows that. We, we can't know everything. Mm -hmm. He'll reveal everything else in the future. So you would say that the Bishop of Rome was the first among equals, or? We would say, I'm not sure that phrase is correct, but there were five patriarchal sees, Rome, Constantinople, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Alexandria. And... Uh, you know, they had equal authority. The older sees were honored, Jerusalem among, among them, and Rome. 
Constantinople was the newer one, but they had equal grace. They're, not, they're all just bishops. The, the bishop of the smallest town is still a bishop, and a bishop means to be an episcopos, an overseer of the church, a shepherd of the church. And all of these are, first of all, in account, accountable to Christ and the faith that they all stand upon in Christ. And that's where they get their authority, not from where they happen to be in power uh, as bishop, where their, where their see is, in other words, uh, but from keeping the apostolic faith and, and by not just verbally, but within themselves, within their heart. And who are the most important figures in Orthodox Church history? Because there's, I know there's quite a few to name, and yeah, yeah. the list is very, very yeah. long, but yes, who are so the most yeah, important? Yeah, of course, of course, our Savior is, is the head of the Church. He's the, our, the God-man, Jesus Christ, the God who became man, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son of God, who took flesh of the Virgin Mary. So if you ask the riddle, who is the most, the highest human person, human person in the church, the answer is the mother of God, because Christ is a divine person. He's not a human person. He took flesh. He had true, true human nature, true divine nature, truly God, truly man. But the highest human person is a woman, the Theotokos, the birth giver of God. So she is the highest person. Now, Below her, of course, all the apostles and the great hierarchs of the church, St. Basil the Great, St. Gregory the Theologian, John Chrysostom, St. Athanasius the Great, we have on our icon screen so many of these great saints. And in modern times, saints like St. Innocent, uh, the Enlightener of America, Mm -hmm. St. Tikhon, who was the one who fought against uh, Vladimir Lenin when communism took over Russia and was a martyr for Christ there. But there's the ascetical saints, St. Anthony the Great, for instance, uh, and then there's the martyrs, St. Stephen, the first, the first martyr, St. George, the great martyr. There's so many martyrs and saints. And then there's the saints that are, are lesser known, but they're known to God. Mm-hmm. As, the, as the thief said upon the cross, remember me, O Lord, when you come into your kingdom. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise, the Savior promised him. And he forgave him his sin. And it is better to be a little-known saint than a famous one who rejects God. So, if you're in the memory of God, you, you are blessed. So uh, our Savior, of course, warned us that among the Gentiles, you know, the greatest lorded over the lesser. But in the church, he came to be the servant of all. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And we, if we want to be great, we have to serve others. That's how we achieve greatness, by serving the other, by washing the feet of the disciples, as our Savior did. So we have the example of humility, Humility leading to greatness because out of service, we have to imitate he who emptied himself for the world and took our flesh and suffered for us and did everything for us upon this earth. So um, who is the greatest? He who is the servant of all. Thank you so much. I was actually very curious about that myself. And it's really hard to compare everyone because it's everyone has different things that they've done and everyone's in service of God. So right. it's very much... You can't compare them all because they're all working towards the same goal. Absolutely. And some are prophets, some are teachers, some are evangelists, some are, some are healers. You know, there's all kinds of jobs, and, and not all are the eye, not all are the foot, not all are the hand, but each has its place in the body of Christ. So my next question is, as you know, in Georgia, St. Nino is one of the most important religious mm-hmm. figures. How exactly is she venerated in the Orthodox Church? Well, she's called equal to the apostles. Mm-hmm. This surprises People who are feminists who think that the church doesn't honor women. She's called equal to the apostles. She lived 350 years after them. She was a relative of St. George, actually. Yeah. Yes, that's interesting to know. 
And uh, it is said that she, she was 12 years old. She was living in a convent at the time. Her father had become a monk with the permission of St. Nino's mother, and, she, and her mother became a nun, and she was, grew up in this convent. Now, at 12, she got it in her mind that she wanted to visit the, the place of, of Georgia because she heard about the robe of Christ was taken there, mm-hmm. the robe that was taken from him when he went upon the cross and they drew lots for it, it was taken there. And she wanted to find it. She wanted to venerate it. And the mother of God, it says, appeared to her in a, in a dream and said, you go and you preach the gospel of my resurrected son there. And she gave her a, a cross of, made of grapevines. And St. Nina, she, she tied it in her own hair and her own hair got mixed in with the, with the cross. And she woke up with this cross and she took it to Georgia and God blessed her immensely to, to bring the faith there. Remember, she was, she was not a priest. She was not a deacon. She was not a bishop. She was a humble woman who preached, and she prayed. She had more time praying than preaching. And by a miracle of God, she converted the queen, Nana, mm-hmm. and her husband, Mirian, uh, the king, who was himself against Christianity. He thought of destroying the Christian church. But by a miracle of God, uh, he came to see the light, and they actually supported St. Saint, Saint Nino, and they called for St. Constantine the Great to send priests and bishops to to found churches, and after that wasn't enough. So bring us architects. We want to build churches. Mm-hmm. We want to make this the faith of our nation. And uh, so it was. So she is greatly revered. It's a, her feast is in the middle of January. And um, uh, you know, when you go to Georgia, I'm sure you know, she is the, the number one saint. You know? Yes, she's the number uh, one. With, with St. George, of course, mm-hmm. with St. George. But St. Uh, George and St. Nino, yes, yes, you know, they're yes. everywhere, and yes. that is... Yes. It's actually one of the, um, I actually mentioned when my, in my first episode when I was talking about how Georgia got its name. It's a lot of people reference St. George uh-huh. being as a reason that Georgia got its name. And just one of the many reasons that Georgians like to attribute why they're called Georgia in English. And of course, in, in Georgian, they're called Sacartvelo, which is Latin of the Cartvelli. Cartvelli. Yeah. But in English, it's, it's Georgia, or right. St. George. Right, so St. It's, George, yeah. So it's just one of, the, one of the reasons they give for that. But yeah, St. Nino is very highly revered, and I know so many people named Nino in Georgia. Yes. And it's very much, she is one of their main patrons. She's their patron saint. Mm-hmm. So it's very much, they, I've seen the churches where she's been. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've actually been to the church where the Christ tunic is buried. Oh my gosh. Svetic wow. in Metisqueta. So I was actually there. I heard rumors that the tunic was buried there, but I was actually looking for the tunic and not, didn't notice in front of me that it was right there. And I actually took a picture of where it was buried and didn't even know it until I actually was reading up on the story. And then out of nowhere, I see the picture of this. I'm like, no, wait, I have a picture of that. Wow. Went through my my files and lo and behold, I have a picture of Christ's tunic's burial spot right there. Wow, wow. I was like, wow, this is not something I was expecting to have. Yes. Because I thought I was upset because I didn't think I had it. Yes. And then next thing you know, I actually do have a picture of where it is. And I was was like... Yeah, the saint led you to that. I'm I'm convinced. I'm convinced. Yeah, so I was ecstatic to know that I was actually there. And the whole story where the tunic was sent there, I've actually gone over it in my podcast on when I talk about Parsman I, who was a king of Georgia um, or the king of Hartley at the time. Mm -hmm. And basically how I spent a good chunk of that episode talking about how the, the Jews of, who were visiting in Jerusalem actually, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, they bought it off a raffle and they just took it with them mm-hmm. and they buried it there. And then 
I'm actually going to talk a bit more about it in my show, but there was actually this massive tree that grew out from where yes. it was buried, and that was, and that tree is actually, that burial spot was, the timber of that tree was used to build the church. Wow. And then they, and essentially St. Nino prayed to basically lift this heavy piece of lumber to help build the walls and everything. Mm-hmm. And that is how Svetitskaveli Church was built in yes. Georgia. So, but God wouldn't anybody see it or touch it. Mm-hmm. But she she knew that it was there. She had a vision of it that it was there. And, yeah, and yeah, and as part of her helping with the conversion of yeah. Georgia, it was also she prayed and prayed, but she didn't let. She actually prayed, kept praying all through the night, holding this piece of timber up, which is mm. heavy that no man could lift. Mm. And then once everyone came in, she. Her prayers finished, and the timber fell right into place where it should have been, mm. and that's where they started constructing the church. Wow! Yeah. yeah. So it's mm. it was fan, it was a fantastic story to read. Wow! Right. It, it is it is a beautiful story. I, I have a copy of her life here. Um, you know the um, the Orthodox Church. We pray to saints because Saint Paul says, "I don't know what is better, to live and serve you, or to die and be near Christ." That's what Saint Paul says. So we don't have the concept of orthodoxy that the dead souls are in some kind of coma. Mm -hmm. We believe they're alive and they're praying. If you look at the book of Revelation, there's there's an image there of millions of martyrs under the throne of Christ praying to him to put an end to this world and and bring his judgment upon it. And there they are praying for the world. It's Mm -hmm. it's in the book of Revelation that St. John the Evangelist, St. John the Divine wrote when he was in exile in the island of Patmos. So we have so much evidence of the lives of 2,000 years of church history that the saints' prayers are effectual. And St. James, the brother of the Lord, says, the prayer of a righteous man has great effect. So we can ask each other to pray for each other, right? That We do that all the time. But when you ask one of the living saints who are near God to pray by the great cloud of witnesses, and we know about the internet, but there's a better internet connection called the Holy Spirit. <laughs> it connects us with the saints in some miraculous way that they can hear our prayers that we can't explain. And we ask their prayers, and somehow in the Holy Spirit, they hear our prayers, and they join our prayers to Christ for, for our salvation. And, and so we believe St. Nino is, is praying for the Georgian people, but for all who, who call upon her with faith. Okay, so what we call the Catholic Church today historically wielded a lot of political power, and this church was donated by the Tsar of Russia. What relationship did the Orthodox Church have with the governments of the monarchy of Russia or Bulgaria, for example? Yeah, that's, it's, uh, so you're asking what power did, so you're saying the Roman Catholic Church had a lot of political power. Yes. Now, that's, but the Tsar, he also had political power, which he wielded for the church. Sometimes it was in a good way that helped spread the faith and build the churches. But in the case of Georgia, for instance, initially in the 1780s, there was a treaty to protect Georgia. And then after about 20 years, they kind of took it over, you know. Thank you, Paul. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, so we we see how human beings' passions and and lust for power and ambition interfere sometimes in church life. And that uh, some people mean well, but as we say, uh, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, as that famous saying. Uh, so the Georgians were first grateful to have the Russian Tsar protecting them from the Ottoman invasions, etc. Later on, they wished that they would let them have their independence, and it took mm-hmm. a long time to get that back. Yeah. And even today, they're always under threat that the heavy hand of uh, Putin is going to come in and take away their liberty. 
Mm -hmm. And that's something you can see nowadays too with, they just got their, you know, their patriarch back, Mm -hmm. not back in the 90s, because after they were taken over by the Russians, they essentially said the Georgian church is no more. You fall under the purview of the Russian church. Right, right. And then it took until the 90, you know, the 89, when Georgia finally got its independence from Russia. It was actually a few days ago, the National Day of Unity on the 9th. Yeah. Um, we're recording this on the 14th of April, just so everyone knows. So just a few days ago. 2022. 2022. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and just, it was just a few days ago where that happened. And... They were able to restore their Georgian Orthodox Church. Oh, thank and God. Yeah. Essentially bring everything back because at that point, once the Soviets came in, the church was nearly obliterated. Yeah. And like they lost a lot of their faith. He actually, back in Ukraine, a lot of the Ukrainian Orthodox converted to Catholicism, mm-hmm. actually, because of because the Catholics still had power, but the Orthodox Church did not. Right. Which I was actually remember reading in a book by um, Father Kalistos or mm-hmm. Timothy Father Kalis Ware. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Father Ware. So I was like, I remembered reading one of his, two of his books about yeah. uh, the Orthodox way and the history of the church. Right. And I was just astounded by that whole, I thought, oh, you know, they, maybe they just le- left it alone, be, be it something. No, they actively pers- persecuted the Orthodox. And it wasn't just in Russia, it was all over the yeah. Soviet Union. Yes. So. Yes. When I read back that, you know, the Georgians immediately went back to adopting their faith, they, yes. or they actually showcased it now instead of just hiding it, they were able to showcase their faith. And um, I thought it was actually fantastic that the Orthodox, the Georgian Orthodox Church made a resurgence and strongly at yeah, that. Yeah, thank God. People love their own culture, their own language, their mm-hmm. own traditions. And there are things that are best expressed in one's own tongue, one's own language. I'm of Greek descent. My father was born in Greece, and my first language of worship was always Greek, and uh, yet I didn't speak Greek at home, but in worship I used it. And still, there's something about it. When I chant something in Greek, it just gets deeper into my heart, into my soul. I can't explain it to you than when I say the same thing in English. I don't know what it is, Uh, but I think that the Georgian people have exactly the same experience using Georgian. And um, what we try to do in this little church of St. Peter and Paul in Mount Union, Pennsylvania, is at the resurrection, we will chant Christ is risen in Slavonic, in, in English, in Greek, in Arabic if we have it, or Eritrean, or, or Spanish, or whatever mm-hmm. the language of the people who are here. Because it means something to hear something in the, your mother tongue. It's so important. And I, your Orthodox has always defended that. So in, in the Latin church, there were only three languages permitted in worship. Those are the languages written on the cross above our Savior's head. Mm-hmm. That is Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. No other language could be used in worship. And not until Vatican II in the early 1960s, they changed that. But in Orthodoxy, they said, what are you talking about? Pentecost showed us the apostles preaching in all the languages of the people who were there listening. And there were 120 in that upper room when Pentecost happened, including the Mother of God. And people said, how can we understand these people? You know, we're all, I'm from this place and you're from that place. We all understand them in our own native language. So that's what Orthodoxy did everywhere. It always spread the faith in the language of the people who lived there, and it, they worshiped in that language. St. Innocent of Alaska, when he came to Alaska to preach, he preached in the Aleut language. He taught in the Aleut language. He invented the Aleutian alphabet, St. Innocent of Alaska. They didn't have an alphabet, so he invented it, and he translated the, the Gospel of Luke in that language. So Orthodoxy has always done that. And so that honoring the the Georgian language is critical for the people of Georgia. And it's a beautiful thing. It's an ancient language. Mm-hmm. Ancient language. 
Yes, and actually, I see there's been like the the Orthodox Church tends to, tends to have a very big continuation throughout history where they actually help people invent their alphabet. So, like mm-hmm. you know, when Saint Kirill went to the the, the Bulgars, he mm-hmm. invented the, the the Cyrillic alphabet. That's right. Yeah, Saint Cyril Methodius, right? Saint Cyril Methodius, mm-hmm. and they were he invented the Cyrillic alphabet. You know, as you mentioned earlier. Saint Innocent with the Aleutian language, he was able to give them an alphabet as well. Right. So it just kind of showcases that. There was a school in, in Russia to invent, to learn the languages of the, of the tribes of the far east of Russia and create alphabets for them so they could make them literate people. You see, until you have an alphabet, you have a prehistoric culture. You can't record your own culture. You can't write it down. It's all just in your oral tradition, your memory. As soon as you have an alphabet, you can start writing everything you remember that your mom and dad and your grandparents and your great-grandparents taught you and all the folklore that came down. It's a beautiful thing. That's why the people of North and, of, excuse me, of Latin America and South America feel so deprived because they didn't have alphabets. And when the Latins came and brought them into Roman Catholicism, they didn't say, here, what's your language? Let's help you write it in, in your language of the Incas, English of the, of the Aztecs. No, we're going to teach you to, to worship in Latin. It just isn't the same. You always feel like there's somebody pushing against you, against your own nature, against your own culture. No, I totally understand that. Yeah. And for me, like when I, I, my family was weird with religion being from Cuba and all mm-hmm. that. So mm-hmm. I would have my grandparents would be very religious. So we, I would go to Spanish Roman Catholic churches. So for me, the faith always started off in Spanish. Right. And then when I went abroad and I started learning about orthodoxy, for me, it was always in Russian. And I come back here do it, doing English. So for me, I always have this mix of yeah. languages, but with, except when I do... When I'm with my family and they want to pray, for me, it just automatically comes out in Spanish. But when Spanish. I'm here, I, you know, English, and then when I go abroad anywhere, if I enter an Orthodox church, they usually tend to be Russian Orthodox mm. for some reason. I don't mm. know how it, it always ends up happening that way, mm. but I'm always used to hearing the Russian Orthodox chants as mm. well. Mm. And kind of like being around different languages, it's always been, I think it's always had an effect on me growing mm. up where... I was just so used to hearing different languages where I would always want people to learn how people communicate in these languages mm-hmm. because I was trying to learn how to read Georgian. Well, I can read Georgian now, thankfully, yeah. but I can't speak it or read it too well to yeah. for comprehension, and which is something I highly regret stopping because just because of circumstances with time and everything. But I'm just glad I'm able to actually read things in their language because yes. it actually gives me a lot more comprehension when I'm trying to look for things, mm-hmm. such, especially such as names. Because mm-hmm. when I do research, sometimes things aren't available in English. Right. And, they, and if they're available in Georgian, I have to be able to see how, if they're in Georgian, to find out if they're available in Russian. Right. So, so I can continue with my comprehension. Yes. I, I have a book here that was written by an archpriest, Zachariah, mm-hmm. and it's called The Georgian Saints. And I've read more than half of it, I think, now. But um, there's so many of these saints who learned Greek or learned Russian and translated everything they found of value into the Georgian tongue so that they could take it back to Georgia and educate everyone. And, uh, and then there were things, of course, in Georgian that were translated into other languages mm-hmm. so to share back and forth. And uh, that's, that's a very critical part and that's, we're so grateful in this country that we actually have things in the English language because as much as I like praying in Greek, when it, something's complicated, I'm so glad it's in English because I wouldn't be able to understand it any other way. Mm-hmm, exactly. So, yeah. And actually, I think I have a copy of, so it's called The Lives and Legends of the Georgian Saints, yes. and it's by David Marshall Lang. Okay. Or he translated it. I don't know who the translator for that one is. Yeah, actually. this is uh, Archpriest Zechariah. So, Zechariah. I think, um, I think it was the St. Herman's Brotherhood translated this. 
And uh, they mentioned that some of these lives were in the Georgian language and in the Russian language saying the same life, but the Georgian words were so much more descriptive and had feeling and were flowery and you, you got the emotion and the, the soul of, of, of the event much better in Georgian, they were saying, mm -hmm. <laughs> than in the Russian language. So uh, they, they, they went to the Russian, to the, to, excuse me, to the Georgian text to try to understand uh, what they were uh, being conveyed, you know. Yes, this is David and Laura and Elizabeth Ninoshvili. So there was Georgians translating it, actually. Well, that's great, that's great. And the writer was, the writer himself was Georgian. Mm -hmm. yes. So that, that's he's, actually he's, really good. Then. He's pictured on the back. Oh, he's, perfect. Yeah, he's, um, so this is a very nice book to buy, The Georgian Saints. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, they're very inspiring. Today, actually, is, is, there's a St. John Shavili and uh, a certain Fool for Christ uh, who are uh, remembered today. And uh, let me see if I can give you their names. But um, Venerable Yohan, or John, of Shafta, Bishop of Inati, and Evlohi, the prophet and Fool for Christ. And they're commemorated today in the Orthodox calendar. So what does a Fool for Christ mean? Yeah, well, St. Paul coined the term. He said, um, you are wise in Christ, but I am a fool for Christ, because he suffers for Christ. Mm -hmm. And you consider me foolish, because I consider it my glory to suffer for the one I love, Jesus Christ, who suffered for me. Mm -hmm. So you think it is great to be honored, to be served, to, to have this and that distinction. And I consider my glory the shipwrecks, the beatings, the scourgings, the spittings, the, the, all the things I suffer for Christ, that is my glory. Now, it, it's turning everything upside down. Mm -hmm. But the fools for Christ, they went around appearing to men to be deranged and foolish, but it was an act. They, were, they wanted people to insult them, to disdain them, to consider them to be of low value and importance. But meanwhile, they were praying for everyone, and they could go in and out and do things and say things, when Ivan the Terrible, who was not a good person, no, not at all. Um, he came to a certain city during the Great Lent, full of hatred, and was going to kill thousands of people. And he heard that this fool for Christ was there in a certain tent. So, he, and so ironically, Ivan the Terrible was a pious Orthodox Christian, but a total hypocrite. So he decides to go visit this fool for Christ. And the fool for Christ knew he was coming, clairvoyantly. And he had this piece of red, raw meat sitting in the center of his tent. He says, Ivan, come and eat. And Ivan says, Tsar Ivan, I can't eat this meat, it's the great Lent. He says, what do you mean? You're eating the flesh of your people. And he left totally shocked because as he had seen his thoughts and what he was about to do, and he left in shame and he didn't kill a single person. But he had the boldness to speak this way to the king, to Tsar, and, and, and put him in his place, you see. And... Uh, so for a moment at least, the Tsar repented of his evil. So the, the church, you know, you know, is not the king. Mm -hmm. the, ki the church often was persecuted by the king. And it, the advantage of all that is persecution sifts out between the opportunists who are there for their own personal glory, mm -hmm. their personal comfort, to live in a special place where everyone's going to honor them and bow down to them and from those who are there for sincere reasons. So a little bit of persecution is good for us. <laughs> so we shouldn't we should feel too sorry for ourselves. Uh, but uh, the Georgian church is astounding. If you read these books, how, what they withstood, you know, first from the Romans and then from the Persians and then from 
the Arab Muslims, and then from the Persian Muslims, and then from the Ottomans, and then from the, from the Mongols. And through all that, they kept their Orthodox Christian culture, their Orthodox Christian language. They, they didn't give up their faith. It's just an astounding uh, act over 2,000 years of, mm-hmm. of, of, of fidelity, of, of faithfulness to Christ. It's just astounding. Yes, and as I like to mention quite often, it, Georgia was also the second nation to actually convert to Christianity. So they preceded Rome itself. Yeah, and yes. in Armenia being the first of Gregory the Illuminator. That's right. But who, who's their neighbor? Who's their neighbor? <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know, the Georgians might be a bit begrudging with that fact. You know, Armenia beat us to this, but... It's also all in good fun with them because, you know, it's the same way between Philly and Pittsburgh where you know, they'll argue about yeah, things, yeah. but they're still cordial with each other. Right, right. But it's just one of those things where, you know, the Caucasus were the, essentially the first places where they actively converted the populace. And I was actually, in my research, I was seeing that the populace of Georgia, or Kartli at the time, was actually already converted. And it was just King Mirian and... Uh, Queen's Nana, who were just taking a while to convert because mm-hmm. they were still Persian aristocracy, Nana being from the from the Bosphorus. Mm-hmm. And with that, you know, they were, it just ended up being political because they saw that the the fire priests, the Zoroastrian fire priests and the Armazi faith was taking too much power from the king and there were all these people with riches. So it, it was also a bit political, but it was also Nino helped them see the light, yeah. actually. So. Well, say, you know, Queen Nana was disdainful initially of, mm-hmm. of St. Nino, but when she became very sick, St. Nino tested her. Well, if she wants me to pray for her, you have to bring her here. Mm-hmm. And they brought her on a stretcher to this humble little hut that St. Nino lived in, okay, mm-hmm. like a pauper, okay, like a bird in a nest. And St. Nino prayed for her, and she immediately was made well. Well, after that, Queen Nana took her in as her own sister mm-hmm. and, uh, and protected her. And that, but then it was the king who was a little slower to convert. He needed a, another kind of miracle to finally come to his senses. Yeah, and he was a very ardent um, Zoroastrian. He practiced the Armazi faith like, mm-hmm. very intently. Mm-hmm. He was actually been, he's been doing it since he was seven years old. He was wow. the head of those faiths in Georgia. Wow. So that, the fact that he converted in the, in the 300s was yeah. just yeah, that's, astonishing. That's miraculous, yeah. Yeah, because he yeah. was... He was essentially the one in charge of it in his region. Yeah. And he's essentially just converted just through different reasons, which I'll be covering at some point soon. I'm sure it'll be exciting to hear that story. Uh, Oh, it'll be so... I'm excited for it. I have all the notes written down. I used to type it up, but I am excited because I've been getting... With with him, I've been getting very narrative with how he's been thinking about things. And it is... He is a spectacle to behold. Yes. Just to see, like, his whole life story. And there's... Of course, the, the chroniclers do tend to flourish a bit. Uh-huh. And they're a bit anachronistic with some details, uh-huh. but I do try to sift through and give the actual information yes. and tell when this may probably have not happened yes. when it comes to historical details. So, because yes. he was the illegitimate son of the Persian um, king of kings, I see. So he was placed into control of Georgia when he was seven years old. Wow. And he married the, the last member of the Parnavaza dynasty, who was the ruling dynasty since Alexander the Great. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so he married into, into that dynasty, but then she died when he was 15, and they had no children. Huh. So then he married St. Nana. I see. Um, at 15, and they had a few children together. Um, and, and at that point, he was essentially head of the faiths of the Zoroastrianism and the Armazi faith. And he just kind of went in and kept doing more and more. And then he was actually one of the greatest kings. Wow. 
And he's the longest ruling king at 77 years. Wow, that's phenomenal. That is phenomenal. I was like, and like, since we don't have yeah. birth and end it, you know, birth and death days, we can't attribute when he actually died. We don't even know the years in which yes. he died. Yes. But the fact that he lasted at least 77 years is just mind blowing. Well, there's no other king probably who ever kinged that long. Not in Georgia, no. But you know, what's, what's always miraculous is to learn the, the con- about the conversion of anyone's heart. Mm-hmm. You know, our Savior says, if you have faith, you can move mountains. Greater than moving a mountain is moving the heart of a man to be one who hates God, who hates the crucified one, who becomes in love with the crucified one, who says, this, is more, this, this man is the most beautiful man I've ever met in my life, and I've never seen him with my eyes, but I know in my heart. And to change the heart of a human being, to love Christ, and to see the suffering servant, this one who came out of love for us, to took our flesh and suffered everything we do and everything we suffer in life, he went through it. And to fall in love with that God, who was not from some distance away, but who came here, emptied himself, to, to love that God, mm-hmm. to, to change the heart of a man, and to say, I want to repent of every evil I've ever done. I want to forgive everyone. I want to love everyone. I want to give to everyone. That is a miracle greater than moving a mountain. Mm-hmm. That's what St. Miriam went through. So his, the, the, the deeper the darkness, the brighter the light. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and just to continue on with the questions I have here. So what role does Orthodox Christianity play in the life of your average Orthodox Christian? Well, it's, it's very individual. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, uh, the Orthodox faith is a, is a faith of liberty. So there are, there's nobody who's checking up on you whether you ate anything during the fast. Or, of course, like Ramadan, for instance. It, it, my, my son spent some time in North Africa, and no one dares to eat between sunrise and sundown. It's, it's, uh, somebody is making sure. But in, in Orthodox Christianity, this is a free religion. You follow your own conscience. You have commandments of God. You keep them or you don't keep them. And uh, so, but for the pious, you know, during the 40 days of the Great Lent, we are not eating meat, we're not eating dairy products, we're not having any eggs, we're not having any fish. We're eating vegetables and kind of like a vegan, very strict vegan, mm-hmm. I even say vegetarian, a vegan diet, not even any, any animal products of any kind. And then we have the Holy Week, which is even stricter into all the services. And we're going to confession frequently and people are preparing for Holy Communion. The whole point of every week is to prepare your heart to receive the risen Christ from the Holy Chalice, the risen and ascended Christ. We're not eating the dead Christ, but the living Christ. So that's uh, the miracle that each of us participates in every week in the, from the Holy Communion. So the, the life becomes centered upon, you know, how do I keep the commandments of God? How do I pick up my cross daily and follow Christ? How do I show God that, that I love him with my whole heart, my whole mind, my whole soul? How do I love my neighbors, myself? And to one, one person said, to love your enemy is to love yourself, because sometimes our greatest enemy is our own self. We want to destroy ourselves. We want to lead ourselves away from God. We, we think only of our self now, not into eternity. And what is, it, what is a prophet of man, our Savior said, if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? So to love our enemy, that part of ourself which is fighting against our best interests, which is only seeing only to the end of the road and not around the corner. So it, it's, it's for each man to take up his cross and follow Christ. And we have the church who, that gives us its examples of the saints and the scriptures, of course, and, and, and our Savior's teachings and, and holy confession and, and the services of the church and the way of life 
to hopefully lead people into a fullness of the Christian life. Thank you so much for that. Um, And then I'm going to ask two more questions. Go ahead. um, So one question we got asked are, what are icons and why are they important? Yes. Well, if you come into Orthodox churches, the most stunning thing you notice are the icons. We have in this church 16 hand-painted gold leaf icons. And uh, an icon literally means image. Of course, we use this in the computer world now. you tap, you click on the icon, the image, right? But ikona means an image. Our Savior says that we were, in, in the Genesis, that he made man in, in his image, in his ikon, his, his image. So we're, we are made in the image of God. But a holy icon is an icon that depicts our Savior or the Mother of God or the saints or the angels and holy personages in a special way that's not naturalistic. It conveys the spiritual. So... That which is from the heavens is depicted here on earth and gives us a glimpse, a glimmer of the eternity. And it leads us to the heavens. So it's a window into, into heaven. And the honor St. John of Damascus taught us, in his, and he's, this is mentioned in the Seventh Ecumenical Council, 787, that the honor given to the icon passes to the one who's being honored. Just as we salute the flag, simply honoring a piece of material, but the nation that it represents. Uh, if we have a picture of our mother, we don't think that's really our mother. We know that's a picture of her, an icon of her, an image of her. And so when we kiss our mother's picture, we're rendering affection to that person who we don't see, who maybe have passed on to the Lord. And we have a picture of our wife in our wallet when we go off to war. Well, you know, our sweetheart, you know, we look at that picture. We know that's not her. That's a picture of her. But still, our feelings and thoughts are directed there and we pray for that person, or we have thoughts about that person of affection. So this, this is so innate and known to us in our own daily experience. experience. Uh, St. Paul says that Christ is the image of the unseen Father. So we have that concept also. But it's so critical in our worship, and we have to direct our worship somewhere. Our Savior walked the earth. Over and over again, we read in the Gospels that someone fell down on his face at our Savior's feet and worshiped him. Well, we don't see him, but we see his image. And so we honor, we venerate the image, and the honor we get to the image goes to the one being honored. There's a story from the life of one of the saints. One of the emperors, he had a hang-up against icons, but his, the coins in his empire had the emperor's picture on them. Mm-hmm. So the, the saints, his name was St. Stephen the New. He says, whose picture is on this great emperor? Oh, it's mine, it's my visage. He says, what would happen if someone... Uh, did something to this, and he spit upon the emperor's image. He threw it on the floor, and he ground on it with his heel. And the image, the emperor was offended. He says, you're offended because I, I did this, but what are you doing to the holy icon? You think nothing of defacing them and destroying them. But some people are thick-headed. Even when you give them that example, the mm-hmm. emperor didn't stop first destroying the icon. But we know in our heart that we are honoring not simply paint, but the image of one who is painted there, we're honoring his image because we love him and we see that icon and we honor the one who's depicted upon it. And a great use in our education of our faith. Before there were books, there were icons. Because let's face it, until the printing press, who had a Bible? But you can see an icon of the nativity of Christ or his resurrection. The whole story comes alive in that one icon. So it's very, very important to our worship. It's like the stained glass windows you would see in like a Catholic church or mm-hmm. something where mm-hmm. it still depicts everything on there, but it gives people a chance to understand the stories that they're hearing about and give right. them like visual 
So it's like the same way you watch a movie. You're like you know this. Like this is a way for you to help you understand the stories of the things that the saints went through, that Christ went through, mm-hmm. and then. But it's just a way for you to know that this is what's happening. But it's not saying this is Christ Himself. This is just a way for you to learn who right. they are. Right. And it's so much easier to when you're speaking about people. It's easier to recognize who they are when you can see them in person. Right. Right. And so the, I always found the way. I always found the icons to be a very good way for me to understand, you know, this is who we are talking about because the moment when I can put a name to a face, it makes me remember who they are and their stories a lot easier because I have that face I can look at or see, oh, I remember this person because they did this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. But the moment you have a lot of different names and stories, they tend to mix together if you don't have that visual connection to do them. Exactly, exactly. You think when you think of your father, you think of his face. Mm-hmm. Think of your mother, you think of her face. You, or your, my deceased wife, I, I picture her. So you don't just think of her name, you think of her face, what she looks like. St. John Damascus pointed out that before God became man, he was indepictable. But once he took flesh, it's not, he, we must depict him, because it confesses his incarnation, that God took flesh. So when we depict Christ, we're confessing that God took flesh. And St. John the Evangelist said, he whom we saw he whom we heard, he whom we handled, you know, that is whom we believe, the Son of God that took flesh. So if we don't have an icon, it's as if we're just Gnostics, that you have an imaginary fantasy faith, not one of, of a living God who, took, who became one of us. So it's very critical to ward against this kind of make-believe religion where we just have ideas and concepts, but nothing, nothing that we can see and touch and feel. Before you came in here today, I, I lit some incense from uh, Saint Abba, the perfumer. He was a Georgian saint. Oh, really? And these are made by a, somebody who uses that saint as a perf- patron saint of their incense uh, factory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they make it by hand, it's not a factory. But um, they, he's, it's dedicated to him. And he had been a Muslim who converted to Christ. And uh, this is his, his icon. Tbilisi. Yes, Tbilisi, yes. And he says some of the most beautiful thing. He was going to his martyrdom, and he, he knew he was going to his martyrdom, and he, he, he sold his clothes, and he used the money to, to give people candles and incense for their churches, and he was about to be killed, and he, he partook of the holy mysteries, he anointed himself with oil, he prepared for death as if he was going to his own wedding. He says, weep not, but rejoice, for I'm going to my Lord. Pray for me. May the peace of God protect you. He cheerfully told the Christians who surrounded him in his last hours. So you see the attitude of this great Georgian saint, Saint Abel, the perfumer who converted from Islam to Christianity in 786 in Tbilisi. And uh, so I lift that incense. I wanted you to smell the incense from the, uh, this Georgian saint. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. No, it's, uh, the icon is very important, and um, many people have been converted just through looking upon icons, just mm-hmm. through looking upon it. And it's... People have such an affection for icons. My grandchildren, uh, they are just glued to looking at icons. They, they have to. And, of course, the icons are designed so wherever you sit, it looks like the icon is looking at you. Mm-hmm. You notice that? That's yeah. some kind of a trick of art, you know, how they do that. But they're just astounding. And, and uh, so it's, 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 a, it's a faith that declares that God has become man. And so we depict him. Actually, if I... I'm speaking truthfully, um, the icons are one of the big reasons why I actually moved to- more towards the Orthodox faith, is because I 
never enjoyed seeing statues mm-hmm. of saints because I always thought, you know, these don't really portray saints in the an actual matter. Like, when I see a statue, I just imagine this is showcasing something historical or something. But when it was always a statue of Christ or something, I always felt really awkward looking upon it because I didn't, it just felt people were, were looking at the statue instead of just what was depicted on it because they would recognize it as Jesus Christ or one of the saints, but having it was just this piece, it was just an object where even though it depicted a saint or Jesus Christ himself, I always did feel a bit awkward when I looked upon an icon. I always felt a bit more calmer because I knew this was something where I could have, you know, even in the smallest space of my home, I could put it there and have a multitude of them. While if I had a statue, it was very much I felt like I was giving too much attention to one particular saint instead yeah. of just. But not only that, you know, there, there's too much of temptation. Once you start making something three dimensional. It's too much a temptation to idolatry. And the church came out of an idol-worshipping culture, okay, Mm -hmm. the Roman culture, but the whole world was worshipping idols. I mean, Hinduism and and, and India, I mean, there's there's thousands of idols, okay. So the church said, no, we can't can't make that our norm, that we're going to depict our saints in statues. Plus, there's a naturalism there. You forget too much that, you know, the spiritual dimension, the kingdom of heaven. And, but when you put an icon, an icon is depicting the other world, the kingdom of heaven itself, and the Holy Spirit is depicted there. And the halos you see remind you that this person had acquired, has acquired the Holy Spirit and God is shining through them. In the Orthodox Church, we sense the icon, but we also sense each person mm-hmm. because each one of them is, is bearing the Holy Spirit. So we sense God in each person and who, who has... Take it upon Christ. All you that are in Christ have been baptized. Christ you put on. Hallelujah. And we become bearers of the Holy Spirit. St. Seraphim in Seraphim of Sorrow said that we should acquire the Holy Spirit and thousands will be saved around us. And he said that's the that object of life is to acquire the Holy Spirit more and more and more and become lights. That's another interesting thing about Orthodoxy. You asked me about the differences. You know, we're not out here to change the world. The job is here within me. I'm the problem, not you. Not the adulteress down the street or whatever. No, me. I'm the problem. And our Savior, think of that Gospel of John chapter 8. They brought this woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. The law of Moses said she should be stoned to death. Our Savior, he stooped down and he began writing. And then he stood up and he says, whoever is without sin, let him be the first one to cast the stone. And then he went back and started writing in the dust again. And one by one they left. And just the woman was standing there. He says, woman, where are you, all your accusers? He says, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. So what is this? He says it's a sin, but he doesn't condemn. So did he judge her? What he did, he says, yes, you made a sin, but I don't condemn you. And that's how our attitude to anyone else. People have this false saying, hate the sin, but love the sinner. I don't want to hate anybody's sin. I only want to hate my own sins. Mm-hmm. Everybody's sins, that's their problem. I think between them and God. I don't want to condemn anybody. Let me condemn myself, what I have done. Let me weep for my own sins. Let me repent of my own sins and let other people repent of theirs. I'm not here to make a crusade to change everybody else. I'm here to, to repent of my own passions and to come near Christ. And if somehow the world gets better for that, I don't know. That's up to God, okay? That's not my object. My object is the problems I have. I need to come near Christ. So, you see, we can recognize that other people are making sins, but we, the most important thing is to know ourselves, to see our own sin. In Greek, the word sin is called amartia. Amartia means to miss the mark. It comes from uh, the, the, the field of archery. So in archery, you have a bullseye, mm-hmm. and you're shooting the arrow, 
If it hits the bullseye, you say, you made it, right? But if you miss it, you say you have an amartia. You miss the mark. Well, in the spiritual life, what's the mark? Jesus Christ. We're supposed to aim to be like him. Anything short of that is an amartia. It's a sin. Well, some sins, sometimes we get pretty close. Sometimes we're way off the whole you know, chart, right? But we're still an amartia. But the point is, is that it's not about evil. It's about trying to imitate he who is the way, the truth, the life, the light. That's where we're going. So sin, the concept is totally upside down. People think of sin in the world, think, oh, all these evil, terrible things. But when we talk about sin in the Orthodox Church, we're talking about Christ. We have to become like him. If we fall short, we have a sin. All have fallen short of the kingdom of God. All have sinned, right? Yes, because none, no one is perfect. No one is Christ. So all of us have a lot to work on. So we do that first. Leave the crusades for other people. We got to work on ourselves. Wow. Uh, really, I was actually getting teared up with that. Thank no, you so much. That's glory to God. Uh, and just like, and just to move on to it's a more broad spectrum. Um, so, what are your thoughts on the Western state of Catholicism and Pope Francis? You know, I, I don't pay too much attention, honestly. Mm-hmm. I, I don't pay too much attention. Um, I, I, I really don't. I, I couldn't comment on it. Um, I, I, uh, I meet all kinds of pious Roman Catholics who really love the Lord Jesus, and I grieve for them because I understand why he won't let them have married clergy, for instance. Why? We've had married clergy in the Orthodox Church for 2,000 years. And this was decided in the First Ecumenical Council in 325, not to impose celibacy upon the clergy. But after the Great Schism of 1054, sometime around the year 1100, the Pope said, starting today, all priests have to give up their wives. And from now on, all priests have to be celibate. Well, how has that worked? Not very well. Not very well, particularly in the modern world. But there were cover-ups of things in the past. You just have to look in the past. It doesn't work very well. I love my wife. We were married 38 years. Mm-hmm. I was a deacon for 15 years of those 38. I was a priest for 10 of those. Okay? I, we had five children together. You get to know life. In the, when you're in the world, you might as well understand the world. Okay? And you understand the world a lot better as a married man. And you have sympathy for people. And there are trials and tribulations and there, there are issues that you don't have when you're, you live a life of celibacy. And, and uh, you know, what, what natural passions we all have are directed toward creating life and creating a union with another human being to mutually love one another and lift us up together to Christ instead of destroying one another by fornication and adultery and all kinds of unnatural sins. So it, it, God has shown us the way to, to keep our passions in check through marriage. And when we try to say, I'm not going to violate the commandments of God, I'm going to keep my virginity until marriage, not for the sake of my wife, but for my own soul, for, for Christ, because God, God owns me. I, I'm God's. I'm his creature. Uh, he says to do this, I have to keep the commandments. Well, then you're a lot more serious when you're dating. You're not want to date the, the supermodel. You want to date a woman who is virtuous, who is kind, who's intelligent, who wants to work hard with you to raise good children, who wants to keep the faith. So the whole way of measuring a woman is different. Do you love this woman? Are you willing to lay your life down for her? I ask this to every person who's going to get married. The day of the wedding, are you willing to lay your life? Are you ready to die for this woman you're about to marry? If he says no, I said, forget it. The wedding is off. I'm not marrying you. If you're not willing to die for this woman, forget it. Christ says he died for the church. And that's, that's he's the example. And, and I asked the bride, are you willing to respect this man and obey him? Obey my husband? 
Well, you shouldn't marry a man that you can't respect enough to obey um, things. Because he's going to say to you, eat. He says, well, honey, you didn't eat anything. I have to work. You eat. The children have to eat. I'm not going to eat. You obey me, okay? I have to do things to provide for you. It's better that you survive than the children. What's happening in Ukraine right now? Who's leaving the women and children? Why? Because the men think it's their duty to fight for their country. But it's, it's the women's duty to carry on. So there's another generation, you see. So it's heroic. Each gender is heroic in its own way. The men die on the battlefield. Women, they sacrifice in the birth. Okay? It's not fair to have women in battle. They have their battle when they have their children. Okay? That's a battle enough. So that's tradition. That's the tradition. That's the tradition. We look at things. Okay? And so you love your wife. You give everything for her. She loves you. She gives everything back. And you have these children. And you have blessings. What can you say? So it is a blessed thing to have married clergy. So I agree for my Roman Catholic friends. Why don't you have married clergy? Why are they talking about priestesses? That, that's not the tradition of the church for 2,000 years. That's the tradition of, of uh, the people in Egypt who worshipped the, the goddess Isis and all these things. That's not the tradition of Christianity. It's not the tradition of Judaism to have female priestesses. It's just not appropriate. Okay? The priest is supposed to be the image of Christ, who is a male. Okay? And God has always said the firstborn of uh, the lambs was offered, the lamb of God. It was a spotless male lamb was offered as a sacrifice at Passover. It was not the female lamb, okay? That's just how God has always set it up. You want to argue why that is? Take it up with God. I don't know. This is how we've received it. We, don't, we just keep what we receive. But to have married clergy, that's much more old than forcing people to be celibate. It's just not, it's not good. There's a lot of very good men who love their wives, who have their passions, and who direct them in a, in a constructive way that builds, builds families and builds towns and villages and, and great things because they have bent their neck and been faithful to one woman their whole life. That is the object of, of, of what married love is supposed to be. So uh, it's, I, I wish and pray that someday the pontiffs uh, make change to go back to the beginning, back to the beginning, and remember these ancient traditions which would greatly fortify the Roman Catholic Church. So God, God help you. Thank you so much for everything, and that was actually the last question I had oh, for you. Oh, well, glory to God. Yes, so... Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. And oh, it's been a pleasure. It was, it was a very enlightening experience yes. with everything. Yes. So I will say, you know, thank you. So, once again, thank you so much. And thank you for hosting us in this beautiful church where I should come to more often. I, 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 hope, I hope to. so. I hope so. Yes. And, and uh, you know, try to break away from your duties uh, because, you know, the soul has to be fed too. Mm -hmm. not, not, uh, not just the body and not just the pocketbook. And... Uh, God will give you grace. So for what you give to him, he will give back to you. And you say, well, I'm working less and getting more productivity, right? Mm -hmm. So you, that's why the God gave us the Sabbath day rest, uh, because if we don't take some time for our souls to, to nurture our hearts, to know the love of God and experience his forgiveness and love, we, we're not going to have the strength to carry on in this world and carry our cross. So we need each other, and we need the prayers of the church. Okay. Mm -hmm. God bless you. Thank you so much. God bless you.
This is the day.